You should have a little front back stay guide. If you don't, raise your hand. Okay, thank you, ushers. And we're in that section of 1 Kings. Uh, just the nature of the beast is we, we need to read large sections of the narrative. Okay, so there's a lot of reading. And because scholars generally deal with chapters 9 and 10 together, we'll likewise deal with those two chapters together tonight. And we're looking at the second part of what we began looking at last week, dedicating the temple. And uh, you can really see at this point the influence, remember how I told you initially, the influence of the book of Deuteronomy, the theology of the book of Deuteronomy, you can see really coming to light in 1 Kings, where there would be blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. So let's pick up reading in verse 1 tonight. Uh, it says, When Solomon had finished building the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had achieved all he had desired to do, the Lord appeared to him a second time as he had appeared to him at Gideon. The Lord said to him, I have heard the prayer and plea you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness as David your father did and do all I, com I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. But if you or your descendants turn away from me, <clears throat> And do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble. All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? People will answer because they've forsaken the Lord their God who brought their ancestors out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why the Lord brought all this disaster on them. At the end of 20 years, during which Solomon built these two buildings, the temple of the Lord and the royal palace, King Solomon gave 20 towns in Galilee to Hiram, king of Tyre, because Hiram had supplied him with all the cedar and juniper and gold he wanted. But when Hiram went from Tyre to see the towns that Solomon had given him, he was not pleased with them. What kind of towns are these you've given me, my brother? He asked. And he called them the land of Kabul, a name they have to this day. Now, Hiram had sent to the king 120 talents of gold. Here is the account of the forced labor King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple, his own palace, the terraces, the wall of Jerusalem, and Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had attacked and captured Gezer. He had set it on fire. 
He killed its Canaanite inhabitants and then gave it as a wedding gift to his daughter, Solomon's wife. And Solomon rebuilt Gezer. He built up Lower Beth uh, Haran, uh, Baloth, and Tadmor in the desert with his land, as well as all his store cities and the towns for his chariots and for his horses. Whatever he desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and throughout all the territory he ruled. There were still people left from the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. These people were not Israelites. Solomon conscripted the descendants of all these people remaining in the land whom the Israelites could not exterminate to serve as slave labor as it is to this day. But Solomon did not make slaves of any of the Israelites. They were his fighting men, his governing officials, his officers, his captains, and the commanders of his chariots and charioteers. They were also the chief officials in charge of Solomon's projects, 550 officials supervising those who did the work. After Pharaoh's daughter had come up from the city of David to the palace Solomon had built for her, he constructed the terraces. Three times a year, Solomon sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings on the altar he had built for the Lord, burning incense before the Lord along with them, and so fulfilled the temple obligations. King Solomon also built ships at Ezion Geber, which is near Elath and Edom, on the shore of the Red Sea. And Hiram sent his men, sailors who knew the sea, to serve in the fleet with Solomon's men. They sailed to Ophir and brought back 420 talents of gold, which they delivered to King Solomon. When the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord, she came to test Solomon with hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all she had on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. She said to the king, The report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold, large quantities of spices and precious stones. Never again were so many spices brought in as those the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Hiram's ships brought gold from Ophir, and from there, they brought great cargoes of uh, sandalwood or uh, almond wood and precious stones. The king used 
uh, the almond wood to make supports for the temple of the Lord and for the royal palace and to make harps and lyres for the musicians. So much amount of wood was, has never been imported or seen since that day. King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all she desired and asked for besides what he had given her out of his royal bounty. Then she left and returned with her retinue to her own country. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents, not including the revenues from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and the governors of the territories. King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. He also made 300 small shields of hammered gold with three minas of gold in each shield. The king put them in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. Then the king made a great throne covered with ivory and overlaid with fine gold. The throne had six steps, and its back had a rounded top. On both sides of the seat were armrests with a lion standing beside each of them. Twelve lions stood on the six steps, one at either end of each step. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. All King Solomon's goblets were gold, and all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's days. The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea along with the ships of Hiram. Once every three years it returned carrying gold, silver, and ivory, and apes, and baboons, uh, some manuscripts add, and peacocks. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons and spices, and horses and mules. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Ku. The royal merchants purchased them from Ku at the current price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and of the Arameans. Bob Buford was the president and the CEO of a large cable communications company that was based in Tyler, Texas. Now, by the time he was just 40 years old, he had reached all of his career goals. He had a great home, a great marriage, he had a son, and he had tons of money. And his company was growing at a rate of 25% each and every year. But still, Bob found himself dealing with a very nagging question. How can I be so successful, so blessed, and yet I feel so unfulfilled? He later gave it the term success panic. 
He was worried that he was actually becoming an addict to success. Now, as a follower of Christ, Bob wrestled with the Lord over these issues. Now, tragically, in the middle of all of his confusion, his son drowned in a swimming accident. Bob had built his empire to turn over to his son, and now his son was no longer alive. He says he found himself at halftime in life. The first half of his life had been about success, but now he wondered about the second half. He wrote a book entitled Halftime, where he talks about the importance of legacy. Now, folks, you know, as we've seen for a few weeks now, the first half of Solomon's life and his reign was what? It's been great, hasn't it? It's been a success. Uh, 20 years into his reign, he has accomplished most of his goals. Four years into his reign, he's built the temple. Then he's built his palace. Uh, there's other building projects that he accomplished as well. And now, 24 years in his reign, we come to chapters 9 and 10. And as I said earlier, most scholars deal with these two chapters together. So I think that's appropriate for us to do. Uh, Solomon has established a spiritual center for the worship of God, the temple there in Jerusalem. Uh, he has completed the administrative and the judicial hub of his empire. He has solidified his kingdom. He's extended his influence. We see that he's even achieved some degree of international fame. And he's brought prosperity to Israel. He's brought his nation into Israel's golden age. He's prayed, he's dedicated the temple, he's blessed the people, he's sent them home, and today we see a continuation of that. Now, only this time it's God speaking to Solomon at his halfway point in his life. So he's appearing to Solomon for a second time. Remember the first time was when Solomon had asked for wisdom. Now, this time I want you to notice that God's response isn't about the bricks and the mortar. That's maybe what we would expect God to be making some comments about the temple. After, you know, reading chapter 8, uh, we might expect something like that. But while in chapter 9, God acknowledges the temple and promises to be there if they obey him, this is not the essence of what God addresses to Solomon. What does God address? He addresses the human heart. The human heart. Uh, look there at verse 4 again and follow me. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness as David your father did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever as I promised David your father when I said you shall never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. And so the first thing I want you to see with me tonight is the fact that God rewards obedience and he punishes sin. 
He rewards obedience and punishes sin. And who is it here that God holds up as an example to Solomon? He holds his dad, David, up. Now, we certainly know that David was far from being a perfect man. But one thing we do know about David is David was not an idolatrous man. Uh, despite his failure with Bathsheba, David had a heart for God. Even God says here that David had a heart full of what? Integrity. And what else? Uprightness. Yes. This is God's judgment of David, that he had a heart of integrity and uprightness. And so God promises Solomon that if he continues in this way, the way that his father David did, that God will bless him. God will bless the nation. But then God warns that if Solomon doesn't, he'll judge Israel. And the temple will be destroyed and the people will be removed from their land. Now, did that happen? Sure did. Babylonian exile. And then even later on, you know, under the, the, the Romans in 70 AD, completely destroyed it. And what would the reason be that God would deal with them that way? Because they have rejected God. They've disobeyed Him, and they've embraced other gods. And so what do we have here? We have an opportunity for blessing or an opportunity for cursing. And what's going to be the key? Faithfulness to God. Obedience to God. It's not going to be simply because they have the bricks and the mortar, the stones there. They have the structure. It, it's got to be more than that. It's great to have the temple. Have the presence of God with them. But what's really going to matter is their faithfulness to God. <laughs> you know, recently we, uh, we went through Galatians. I want you to turn over to Galatians a moment. Because, you know, there's an application in this for us. Look over at Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Listen to what Paul said to them beginning there in verse 7. And we'll just talk about some of what we covered when we went to Galatians a few months back. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. What do we see there? God's not mocked, is he? That's the biggest lie that, that Satan will tell you, that you can live in disobedience to God and everything will be just fine. You know, that's what God tried to convince Eve of, isn't it? Eve, you can get away with it. Eat of this fruit, your eyes will be open, 
You'll see life as you've never seen life before. Eve, you and Adam will be like God. You will be enlightened. Same type of lies Satan is still weaving today into the hearts of men. He's telling us that if we'll just get away from God's word and God's commands, we'll be free. We'll be enlightened. Well, Satan's lie didn't pan out for Adam and Eve, and it'll not pan out for us. God is not mocked. He sees everything about our lives. Psalm 10, verse 11, says of the person who buys into Satan's lies, he says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. And you know, sadly, this age has convinced the people who believe that, Right? I told you back in the Galatians study, it's kind of like a little boy, you know, in Sunday school. The teacher asked him, who would you rather be, a rich man or Lazarus? And he said, the little boy spoke up and said, well, I'd, I'd rather be the rich man while I'm alive on earth. But after I die, I'm going to be like Lazarus. Well, a lot of people think you can have it both ways like that. The problem is, Paul says here, God's not mocked. And the Greek word that he uses there in Galatians is, is literally, you're not going to thumb your nose at God. You're not going to thumb your nose at God and pull the wool over his eyes. And then also Paul says here, uh, whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Principle of sowing and reaping. The harvest is always a product of the seed. A man reaps exactly what he sows. If you sow corn, you don't reap squash. And what kind of sowing is it that human beings do? We can sow to the flesh on the one hand, and in that case, Paul says, we reap what? Corruption. You know, it, it refers to decay. A, a Christian doesn't lose his salvation, but it certainly makes his testimony rotten, doesn't it? And we'll lose our joy. We sow to the Spirit, though, we reap eternal life. We enjoy a life full of the fruit of the Spirit. And so we need to look at our lives. What are we sowing? God was telling them in 1 Kings 9 how bad it could potentially get. How good it could be, but how bad it could get. Again, another parallel with Galatians. We reap more than we sow, right? You sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. You sow to the Spirit, you reap eternal life, an intensification of the harvest. You don't just reap things of the flesh, you reap corruption. You don't just reap things of the Spirit, you reap eternal life. If a farmer sows a, a seed, of, a kernel of corn, he doesn't just reap another kernel, he gets a stalk. And it will usually have one, two good ears on it. There's another parallel. Look, look at what Paul says in verses 7 and 8. Uh, he points out uh, here, let me get back to it myself. Verse 9, he says you reap later than you sow. A farmer doesn't sow on Monday and reap on Tuesday. 
You don't put $1,000 in the stock market today and get $10,000 out tomorrow. In fact, the way things are going right now, you might put $10,000 in today and get $1,000 back tomorrow, right? <laughs> but this is where people mess up with God, right? Because they, they do something, they think, aha, I've gotten away with it. But you know, somebody wisely said, the wheels of God may grind slowly, but they do grind surely. But again, there's a wonderful promise in, in 1 Kings. What is that promise? God's going to be with them. God's going to speak to them. He's going to hear their prayers, as we saw last week. He's going to answer their prayers. When they're, when they're being attacked or they're facing storms and famines and all that, and they repent of their sin, they're right with God, and they look toward that place and pray, what did God told, tell them? He was going to hear. He was going to answer. It's just like Paul said in Galatians 9 too. Don't give up. Sometimes you might feel like you're spinning your wheels because you don't see things instantly happening. Paul says we're not to grow weary. We're not to lose heart. Don't give up. Don't grow weary. Solomon's throne and the health and the well-being of the people would only be maintained by spiritual obedience that was a way of life. Well, the second thing I want you to see here. God blesses Solomon and the people. Beginning there in verse 10 of chapter 9, and then beginning in verse 1 of, of chapter 10, we see, first of all, this prosperous alliance that Solomon has with Hiram, king of Tyre. Now, Tyre refers to the Phoenicians. They lived along the coast, and they were a seafaring people. Now, the two kings, as we saw last week, they had worked together on the building of the temple. Hiram had helped supply the materials needed. And, and so there was this alliance between Hiram and Solomon that, by the way, had started with David, between Hiram and David. And since the Phoenicians were a seafaring people there on the uh, Mediterranean, and since Israel controlled a lot of the major land routes that went between Egypt below them and the big empires to the east of them, this, this was an alliance that would be mutually beneficial. That's what Solomon and Hiram both are counting on. Both of them, both of their nations will benefit from this alliance. Because whether by land or by sea, with both kings looking after the other one, they'll, they'll have all these routes that peoples would travel. They'll have things kind of taken care of. And, and you can see in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 9 that both of these kings worked well together. Uh, Hiram evidently helped Solomon to assist Israel to become better acquainted with the sea. And that's something Israel had not been known for. In fact, they were never a seafaring people. But Hiram helps out with this. 
And in exchange for gold, Solomon gives Hiram 20 cities in the area of Galilee. Now, I'm going to have a lot more to say about that later. But Solomon gives him 20 cities. Hiram didn't much like the area, calling the region of those 20 cities good for nothing. But he, but he must not have been too offended because it didn't seem to put a strain on the alliance the two kings had together. Well, in the remaining parts of chapter 9, we see Solomon building storage cities and military cities, although Solomon never actually went to war. And what we see in this chapter is that Solomon is just carrying out, there's just this flurry of activity and flurry of construction projects. And he's fortifying the land of Israel very well. Again, as I've said multiple times, this became the golden age of Israel. <clears throat> well, you'll notice from verses 20 and 21 that he used forced labor of the Canaanite peoples that the children of Israel should have run out of the land when Joshua and the, and the people started entering into the promised land, should have gotten rid of these people, but they had allowed them to stay. And so these people become slaves to the, to the Hebrews. And then in verse 25, we see that Solomon is offering burnt offerings three times a year. And so in the midst of his flurry of activity, at least on the outside, he's continuing to lead his people to be a people of worship, honoring God. Now, from verse 14, I know I'm skipping around some here, from verse 14 and verse 28, you can see that Solomon is amassing quite a fortune. And as we get into chapter 10, we see the visit of the Queen of Sheba. Now, most scholars locate ancient Sheba in the area of modern uh, Yemen, about 1,500 miles away from Israel. Uh, Sheba was famous for its, uh, this, this area was famous for its spices, for its incense, for its gold, and for its precious stones. Uh, Solomon had also formed an alliance with Hiram of Phoenicia that, that we've been describing already. And so we see here that he is becoming a bigger and bigger political player with other nations and other rulers. And as he's widening his influence, his international influence, what's going on? What's he known for? His wisdom. Even 1,500 miles away, the Queen of Sheba has heard about him. And so she comes to see for herself and to test him with questions. And she attributes Solomon's wisdom to God. But, but what's probably going on here is she's sizing up Solomon, uh, seeing if he's really somebody and his people are a people that she wants her people to enter in to an alliance with. 
You know, if Solomon's becoming a bigger international figure and he and Hiram of Tyre are together in an alliance, then she's probably looking for political partners too, for allies too, just like nations do today. And at the end of verse 5, we're told that what she sees takes her breath away, is a literal rendering of the Hebrew there. She's, she's stunned. It just takes her breath away. Everything she hears about from Solomon, everything she sees, and, and the wisdom that he demonstrates. And she goes on to give him 120 uh, talents of gold. That'd be four and a half tons. In return, Solomon gives her gifts. And so again, what are they doing? They're just building alliances here. But I do think it's important to look at just face value of what the Queen of Sheba recognizes. She recognizes that God's hand is on Solomon and Israel. And so she gives praise to God. I'm just wondering there in verse 14, is that a happenstance figure there on the talents of gold? Or is there something beyond that? Because of that number, six, yeah. six, six. I think it's, I don't think we're supposed to read anything. Okay. Mark of the Beast is what you're referring to in Revelation. Well, yeah, yeah I, I don't think that's, that's. I figured it was a stretch, but I said, <clears throat> Well, the third thing I want you to see tonight, though, is signs of trouble. Signs of trouble. Look back at uh, look back at verse eleven of chapter nine. Verse eleven of chapter nine. What's Solomon doing there? Giving away twenty cities. Well, folks, for one thing, these cities are not Solomon's to give away. This is land that God has given. Israel. What Solomon is doing here, he's giving away part of the promised land. Now they'll get it back later, but what in the world is Solomon doing giving away part of the promised land that God has led him into? Well, Scholars believe what's going on here is that Solomon, with all of these projects that he's got going on, guess what's happening? He's what? He's strapped for cash. Exactly. He's broke. He's strapped for cash. He's been doing too much too fast. Government spending too much. He's broke. And so the 120 talents of gold that Hiram paid to Solomon was actually a price that Solomon has put on these cities. But again, don't let it get past you what Solomon is doing here. He's selling off the promised land. Shame on Solomon. So again, you see some signs of trouble here. Government spending, strapped for cash, financially broke. <laughs> Sound like today? <laughs> 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 
Then in verses 22 and 23, Solomon is conscript, conscripting his fellow citizens. They're not slaves, but they're required to serve. They were required to give one month out of every three to Solomon's uh, projects. Now, this situation would explode in the rebellion of the northern tribes after Solomon's death. But does this right here, conscripting his own people into servitude, does this bring back any memories of Samuel and the people? Is it ringing any bells? Remember when the people wanted to be like other nations? They wanted to be like other nations and they wanted a king. And remember what God said to Samuel, what God said to the people? Said, these kings that you want, I'm going to give you a king. You want a king. But, but they're going to they're gonna end up taking your money and taxes and it's going to get so out of hand it's going to be a terrible burden on you. And they're even going to conscript your young people into servitude. They're going to take your sons and daughters to serve the government, to prop up everything they've got going on. And so what do we see coming to pass here? Exactly what God warned them about. Solomon's personal ambitions are beginning to crush the people. Now, in, in verses 14 to 25 of chapter 10, gold is mentioned nine times, and it's present in massive amounts. God promised Solomon wealth. He has it, but he seems to be using a lot of it on self-indulgent decorations and extravagant displays of government royal wealth. You know, it even talks about apes and baboons and peacocks and he's just amassing all this kind of stuff. And then in verses 26 to 29, he's raising and trading horses. You think big deal. Raising and trading horses. But wait a minute. Go back to Deuteronomy 17 verse 16. The king wasn't supposed to do this. It might have been good business and good entertainment for Solomon, but it was not the standard that God wanted of his king in Israel. So he's violating Deuteronomy 17, verse 16. In verse 22, it just seems, as I've just mentioned, you see Solomon, it just seems like he's entertaining himself to death. If you'll go and read the first couple of chapters of Ecclesiastes, the first couple of chapters of Ecclesiastes will go along perfectly with this right here. Okay? Where Solomon talks there about everything that he amassed for himself, all the servants, all the fields, all the gardens, all the animals, all the, I mean, he just goes on and on talking about what he accumulated for himself, looking for significance and all of that. 
But in Ecclesiastes, what did he say he finally learned? It's what? It's vanity. It's all vanity. It's empty. It's meaningless. Solomon's supposed to be a witness to the world. He's supposed to be a shining light. And he's just accumulating toys for himself. Just to satisfy his whims. So at this halfway point of Solomon's life, by all apparent standards, anybody looking at Solomon would say, man, he's a success. But you're already seeing the seeds of trouble, right? The seeds of trouble are being sown. The second half of his life might be about acquiring more and more and more but the second half of his life is not going to be about living for God as, as he should have. He was building a kingdom that was rich, but it was a mile wide and an inch deep when it came to the things of the Lord. And how do we know this? Because when he died, the kingdom rebelled and divided. The northern kingdom ended up being destroyed. The southern kingdom ended up going into exile and, and the complaints they're going to give at the time is because of all this extravagance that Solomon was doing and the burden it was putting on them which was too much. In Enron, you remember Enron? On the top of the world. 16 years after it had been formed by the merger of two companies, it was ranked as the seventh largest company in America. An influential business magazine listed it as the second most admired company in America for quality of management, and it was listed first as being the most innovative company. But before 2001 ended, they had filed for bankruptcy protection, Almost $70 billion of equity just vanished. Devastating many families financially. And what did Enron appear to be? A failure of the heart. The integrity of the human heart. Losses had been hidden. Profits had been overstated and exaggerated. And debts had been camouflaged. Everything looked good on the outside, but the seeds of destruction had been being sown for years and years. Reminds you of what's going on right here. Folks, it's dangerous to live for success rather than for obedience to God. It's dangerous. It's dangerous when we just get blinded to the things of the world and success and maybe even our own press, what people are saying about us and all the pats on the back we're getting. And people just become hungry for more and more of that success. There's a danger in it if their heart gets away from God. What's God after? God is after His people to walk in integrity, in faithfulness, in obedience. God is after your heart. He's after my heart. And He's after us seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness. And if we'll do that, then He's promised He'll take care of the rest. 
ask you tonight, what's captivated you most? Seriously. What are you about? What are you building? What are you accomplishing? Does your life have the primary focus of seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? How about obedience? Is, is obedience in order in your life? Or maybe you've already begun making little compromises. Remember, God knows everything. As you look at your life, you might already be sowing some little seeds of destruction in your life. You need to deal with those. You know, Solomon sold off part of the land God had given to Israel. Are you selling off parts of your heart? Are you selling off things that belong to God and God alone? And you're treating them as though they're yours to give away. No, you're a steward. You've been bought with a price. You're to glorify God in your body. So again, what, what has you captivated? How about obedience? Are you rendering to God that which He deserves? Or is this slow fade already a part of your life? One day, it'll be revealed. One day, it'll catch up with you. Again, what's God after? He's after your heart. In comments, before we pray. You know, God was really painting himself in a corner in such a way he had to do what he did regarding the Israelites when they started, you know, disappointing him big time. He gave instructions. And of course, he follows through on everything. Sure, he's fulfilling his word that he told them. And they just refused to believe. There's no way they could have stood back later when their land was overrun and destroyed. They say, but God, you didn't tell us. We didn't know. No, because he had told them. He warned them. Absolutely. He would have been doing them a disservice if he did not do that. Sure. It's just like parenting. You sit there and promise you're going to the woodshed with daddy gets home, you know, or something like that. If that doesn't happen, you know, guess who's thinks, I scored, you know, I got away with it. Yeah, got away with it. amazing how contemporary the Old Testament is, right? When you think about it. It could be today's headlines. 